Hello, and welcome to the Corporate Pero Latinos podcast. This is your host, Sofia. As many of you may know, our mission is greatly focused on providing community support and resources to those whom we have identified as underserved members of our community. When it comes to immigration law and immigrant rights, this information often does not reach those who could use it the most. In this episode, Catherine Garcia, an immigration attorney, shares some valuable information and insights that anyone with an immigration case should be aware of. We decided to record this episode in both English and Spanish in hopes that this will reach more people who might need it. So without further ado, this is Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Since the moment I met you, you were very generous to offer to share your legal knowledge with our community, specifically around immigration rights. So we thought this was a great platform for this. Happy to be here. It's really exciting to me to have this platform to share some things that I would really like the community to know and that I think are important for, for people to have access to. Awesome. So to start off, I would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. So who is Catherine? I'm the daughter of Mexican immigrants. I grew up in California and moved to New York for law school. I was inspired to pursue a career in law after seeing the impact of immigration laws and policies in my community. I'm passionate for advocating for immigrants' rights, and I've worked in both the public and private sectors. Before law school, I worked with both adults and minors. Um, giving Know Your Rights presentations and screening for legal relief and facilitating legal representation. After law school, I worked at a corporate law firm and I worked in two boutique immigration offices before deciding to start my own practice. Got my BA from Pomona College in California and my JD from Columbia Law School here in New York. Because immigration law is federal, um, I'm actually allowed to practice immigration law in any state. It's a very impressive background. Thank so you. what what inspired you to dedicate time, effort, and even deal with the frustrations of immigration law? Well, I grew up in a mixed status family, and most of the people in my extended family and in my community were undocumented growing up. And so as a U.S. citizen, um, I never felt the fear of directly being deported, but I did grow up with a constant fear that the people closest to me could be deported. And so this made me really interested in law and policy and how I could help undocumented people. I sought out work in immigration in different capacities. I was definitely a lot of frustrations and heartbreak. For a while, I didn't think I'd be able to handle this kind of work just because of the emotional toll that it can take, especially when cases feel like they hit very close to home. But I realized while working in corporate law that I enjoyed my pro bono immigration case way more than any other deal that I worked on. So I decided to go back to immigration. And since I've returned to immigration law as an attorney, and especially since opening my own practice, I feel like I've finally found a good niche within immigration law that I really enjoy and that I feel like I can handle emotionally. How do you deal with heartbreak that comes with it, especially with cases that might hit close to home? 
self-care is really important in um, any line of work, but I think especially when you're dealing with um, people who've experienced trauma, I've received a lot of like training on how to deal with uh, populations that have you know, been very impacted by, uh, you know, very traumatic experiences. And so I feel like at this point, I've found a good balance. I know what works for me. I know if I've had a rough day, like, you know, maybe taking a walk outside or calling my mom or calling a friend usually helps me get through it. And I think also the knowledge that while some of these cases are really sad and they might sound really difficult, like most of the time there's some kind of hope. When it comes to cases that hit really close to home, I think it those cases are the hardest and not necessarily the cases where the person has experienced the most trauma. I think that the the strategy to deal with both situations is is very similar and it just involves knowing when to take a break and, and how to step back a little bit so that I can return maybe the next day or the next hour or whatever it is with fresh eyes and, and just ready to to move forward with the work that needs to be done. I imagine it can be very hard to kind of leave all of that back at work, right? And not bring it home with you. Yeah, definitely. That's always hard because, you know, sometimes in the evenings or if I'm having trouble sleeping and I'm thinking about like the cases and what needs to be done and what can be done. And sometimes it's hard to turn it off. But I do feel like having my own practice has been really helpful because I have way more control over my schedule and my workload and my caseload and what kinds of cases I want to accept. And so that really helps me pick and choose and and also decide when I need to take a step back and take a break without necessarily worrying about, uh, am I online? You know, is someone checking my status on Slack? (laughs) (laughs) Do I need to move my mouse? Yeah, exactly. That's great. I love to hear that you have the option, you know, to kind of step back if you need to. Mm -hmm. So uh, from the outside looking in, sometimes it seems as though human rights and immigration rights are mutually exclusive in the eyes of the law. Would you agree with this? Not necessarily. I think that as someone who primarily works on humanitarian cases, I do think that there is hope for people who've suffered from really intense hardships. However, I do think that getting to that approval is very, very difficult. And the law definitely doesn't make it easy for people to get there, especially with the current backlogs and immigration cases. I think that the reality of what people have to go through is very removed from the theoretical idea of just get in line. Could you expand a little bit on that? like the reality of what people must endure? Yeah, so I think that for a lot of people who are not familiar with immigration law and who have no experience navigating the immigration process, 
it sounds like people can just apply for a visa and it'll be easy for them to to come to the U.S. and they can have legal status and they don't have to be undocumented and they don't have to, you know, cross the border without papers. But in reality, even the people who come with a visa or legally can easily find themselves out of status. There's a lot of circumstances going on in in the home countries that people are trying to run away from. There's a lot of different uh, hardships going on around the world. And the reality is that getting a visa to come legally to the U.S. is ridiculously difficult. And um, there just isn't enough capacity or there isn't enough visas. Um, The laws don't allow for enough people to come uh, compared to the amount of people that there are out there who are trying to come or who are trying to flee difficult situations in their home countries. And I love that you touch on that because it's so easy to tell people to just do something, right? Right. Like, just lose weight, just get a job, just get a visa. Like, it's not that simple. Right. Yeah, it never is. (laughs) All right. Hit us with some helpful resources. But let me paint you a picture. I am a recent immigrant who does not speak English, does not own a computer and has very little money and is intimidated. What would be my first step here? The first step is always to talk to a lawyer. If someone is low income, there are a lot of really great nonprofit organizations in the U.S. who do provide free legal services. So the first step would be to reach out to them. However, I know that there's more people that need services than there are attorneys available at these nonprofits. They're always stretched very thin due to the demand for free services. So people should know that you will probably need to join a wait list and that it might take them a long time to respond to you. They're also restricted in the types of cases that they can take on, but they can always provide suggestions and also they're a good place to start. How long would you say is the time period that it might take for nonprofits to get back to someone? Well, that would really depend on the organization. Um, So I wouldn't be able to give like a great estimate of exactly how long you'll have to wait because that's really determined by each organization. You know, they all have different processes and wait times and you might prioritize certain types of cases, but it really depends on the organization. So I think just reaching out to as many as possible is really the best strategy and as soon as possible. And is this something that I could easily Google like uh, nonprofits in New York who offer free legal? Yes. Yes. I think Google is always a great place to start. And I think even if someone doesn't have a computer um, nowadays, I've never met anyone from immigrants to citizens to, you know, everyone that, I, that I've met acro- across the world has a phone and usually a <laughs> smartphone at that. And so I think that access to Google has been really life-changing for a lot of people. And so, so the, the information's definitely out there. So um, I think even Googling free immigration, legal services, uh, New York, or 
nonprofit um, immigration New York is a really great place to start and and there's so many out there got it so what if I get turned away by a nonprofit if you're turned away by a nonprofit I think it's important to not lose hope there are many private attorneys out there and it's definitely possible to hire a private attorney but um, I would say that people should always make sure that whoever they reach out to is an attorney who is barred and in good standing. This means searching for their name in their state bar's website. You should always make sure that they are a lawyer and not a notario or notary. In Latin America, notarios are very similar to lawyers and they're able to do many things, but that's just not the case in the U.S. In the U.S., notarios are not allowed to practice law unless they are also licensed attorneys. So try to look for someone who has a JD, um, which is the legal degree, and you should also try talking to multiple attorneys if that's possible. Some of them offer free consultations and some of them charge for the consultation, but it's always a worthwhile investment because having more than one opinion is really helpful since different people are able to spot different things and uh, lawyers usually specialize in a specific area. So person may not specialize in the type of case that you could potentially qualify for, but, you know, someone else could give you a better sense of whether or not you qualify for something. And if you start to hear the same things multiple times from different attorneys, then that's also a good way to know, well, that's probably something that you can trust to be true in your case. Is there anything that you wish more people knew? Yes. I think this is something that I found out very recently. This applies more to uh, immigrants who've been in the U.S. for a while, but it could also apply to a recent arrival because the usage or sale of marijuana um, is legal in a lot of states now. However, it still has very serious immigration consequences. I think that not enough people realize that that's the case. Because immigration law is federal, under federal law, marijuana is still illegal, even if it's legal in a specific state. So this would affect all immigrants, including DACA holders, legal permanent residents, and people with temporary visas. Unless and until you become a U.S. citizen, you should definitely try to stay away from marijuana as much as possible, Do not carry a medical marijuana card. Don't have stickers or clothing with images of marijuana on your stuff. Um, You should remove references to it from your phone and social media and make sure that you talk to a lawyer before leaving the U.S. or before filing an immigration petition. And that includes an application for naturalization. Also, you should know that anything that you admit to a government official, especially if it pertains to usage or sale of marijuana, can be used against you. And that includes law enforcement, border patrol, TSA at the airport, um, or consular authorities. I think that um, people really need to to be aware and, and to be careful about that. Wow. So even down to what you're wearing... 
Yeah, I think that people don't realize a lot of times that with social media, like your image can be very accessible. And you don't know if you're, you know, in someone's picture, if you're tagged in something, or if you are wearing something that has images of like marijuana that the Department of Homeland Security could potentially like use um, against you in the future. So just be very careful about, I guess, how you navigate. <laughs> Social media, especially. Yes, yes. Wow. Okay. Can you talk about any recent developments or policies that are helping the cause? So it's really hard to find positive developments <laughs> in immigration law specifically. The last encouraging thing that I read was that back in June, when the Supreme Court throughout a state challenge to deportation priorities that were set by the Biden administration, the government doesn't have the means to deport everyone who is in the U.S. without papers. And for that reason, each administration sets different priorities for deportation. Under Trump, anyone without papers could be arrested and deported. But when Biden took office, he decided to prioritize arrests and deportations for people with a criminal history, suspected terrorists, and recent arrivals. And so those were the um, priorities that um, were being challenged, but thankfully the Supreme Court throughout that that challenge and so, so priorities continue. Yeah, I remember reading about the DACA bill that they were trying to pass recently. Yeah, um, I think that's been ongoing for a while. I, I, I really feel for DACA folks who's, uh, I don't know, it, it's just always back and forth, um, especially when it comes to DACA and just like the uncertainty I know is is really hard on, on people. Exactly. So Catherine, to conclude our episode, are there any specific takeaways that you would want people to get from listening to this episode? Yeah, definitely. I think that navigating the immigration process in the U.S. is really, really difficult. And there are no shortcuts. There are no easy ways out. So if someone tells you that there's a really easy way that you can get your papers, you should definitely be very, very skeptical about that. Always make sure that you're getting advice from a licensed attorney. In my case, um, I'm a licensed attorney. I grew up in the U.S. and I studied here my entire life, but yet I still have to attend training, seminars, workshops constantly in order to keep up with all the changes and all the complexities in immigration laws. Every single type of relief has multiple requirements. Each requirement has an exception and each exception changes depending on whether someone is married, unmarried, their age, their ethnicity, their nationality, whether they have a criminal history, how and when they arrived, etc. So it's very overwhelming and confusing for me. So I know that for someone who may not speak the language or is new to the country, it's even worse. So I think that people should know that everything that you disclose to the government on an application can affect you later. So you should always be very careful about who you trust with your case. How often would you say that immigration law changes? Is this like an ongoing thing? 
Yes, definitely ongoing, especially in like certain areas um, like asylum. It's like things are changing day to day and politics has played such a big role. And when there's um, a surge in demand, then there's a response and and it's it's constantly changing. So it really is a lot to keep up with. Right. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to share with us. I really appreciate it. And I know uh, many of our listeners will too, whether this directly affects them or maybe someone they know or someone they care about. Yeah, definitely. I'm really happy to have the space and the platform to share what I think is really important knowledge and to share some things that I wish I had known and that I wish I could have shared with family and friends earlier. And um, I hope that this was useful. And um, thank you so much, Sophia and CPL, for the opportunity. 